experiment, especially in art, is usually associated with a certain type of freedom, a freedom that expands one's previous understanding, pushes existing boundaries, encourages sharp thinking and creativity. However, the words experiment and experimental can also carry an alienating connotation. To many, experimental art, experimental music or experimental literature is nothing but a bunch of random colors, sounds or words that don't make much sense. In such cases, experiment implies a certain exclusivity. To be able to understand and enjoy it, one has to have a substantial amount of knowledge in the given area. Yet, in their time, authors such as T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Virginia Woolf or James Joyce were also considered experimental. Today, their works are widely read not only by some chosen few, but also by millions of mere mortals who simply enjoy great literature. It makes me wonder... What is Experiment's place in contemporary literature today? This is Literature from Finland podcast from Korte from the Helsinki Literary Agency. And in this episode, authors Laura Nielsen and Sinika Wola will discuss literary experiments, especially the one that brought the Finnish literary scene in 2022. We ask our mystery 101 words to Kim Rasmussen. Sinikka, very nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks. Sinikka, you are an author of several poetry collections and a novel replica. You have also taught writing for years and otherwise uh, been continuously involved in various literary projects. Laura, before your most recent collaboration with Sinikka, you wrote three novels, of which Oneron was awarded the most prestigious literary award in Finland, Finlandia Prize. Also, both of you are members of the Society for Expanding Literary Possibilities in Finland. It is probably fair to say that both of you, throughout your respective careers, uh, have been interested in experimenting with form and language. So let's begin with a very straightforward question. Do you think that today authors still experiment for the sake of pushing the boundaries or simply out of boredom? Well, <laughs> of course, it's difficult to speak uh, speak up for the other authors, what, they, what their intentions might be when they experiment or not. But um, I would t- t- start to... Uh, from demystifying the process of experimenting because uh, when you write literature, uh, you always use some techniques, some devices, some means, and always use some constraints and restrictions. You can't just start writing. You, For example, if you if you write a very kind of mainstream prose, you uh, decide if you want to use a narrator or third-person narrator. Yeah. And that is a uh, 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 decision, and it has consequences to the writing. So uh, it's maybe only a question of um, difference in degree, what the (laughs) constrictions are, and how you you develop them. Yeah. Uh, For me, any writing uh, is playing. Playing with words and meanings and forms, and... I don't uh, think experimental writing as a separate thing, but uh, all writing is that kind of uh, thing uh, for me. 
Uh, also, I believe one of the things that uh, unite me and Laura is that we both uh, are very eager learners. We yeah. want to expand our own knowledge and understanding of our craft. Yeah. So this is uh, how this uh, 101 Ways of kill, uh, to Kill Your Husband uh, was born, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's mutual for us, this uh, kind of seeing writing as as playing, learning, expanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, where I also want to uh, ask about the Society for Expanding Literary Possibilities um, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about how it was created, who are its members, and how do they distinguish themselves in the Finnish literary scene? Because as I understand, they're exactly the players, these the people who like to play with literature. Yes, uh, it was me and Marku Eskelinen who uh, invited a group of people to join to a founding meeting of the society. It was November 2020. And um, the idea was uh, that we wanted to gather some uh, writers and also literary researchers who we thought could uh, be interested in expanding uh, kind of literary possibilities to talk about it. Um, and to invent some new ways to write and to think of literature mm. in general. And we wanted to raise the level of discussion <laughs> higher because uh, at that time, uh, at least, I felt that uh, the level of understanding, uh, especially prose writing uh, and the discussion about it, was was quite poor yeah. in Finland. In the field of uh, poetry, it was good yeah. and, and the discussion was very vivid. But I was uh, frustrated and envious to <laughs> poem writers and the poem society, and <laughs> and I wanted to bring that kind of atmosphere and eagerness uh, into the field of prose writing as well, and um, because uh, the quality was something like uh, describe uh, dis the people describe the plot lines and uh, content of mm. literature and and nothing else. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and uh, we wanted to change that. And that's why we have gathered those people, and and it's about a loose group of about twenty people of names like Harry Salmen Niemi, yeah. Mario Niemi, Jako um, Iljuonikas, Sinikandai, yeah. etc. And uh, um, then our biggest outcome so far has been a collected novel uh, titled Human Experiment. Uh, Experiments. It was out 2016, and it's a uh, quite a huge novel containing 15 books, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 14 writers, uh, eight graphic designers, and it contains oh over 4,000 pages. Oh. <laughs> so that is our masterwork. Uh, but maybe something else will come later. Yeah. At this point, we come to your. Uh, we're talking about plays and games and and ex uh, well, not experimenting, but more yeah, learning and seeing where the literature can take you. And this is exactly what your collaboration, One Hundred and One Ways to Kill Your Husband, is about. Um, it's often dubbed, uh, and I introduced it as an Ulipoesque murder mystery. Um, after reading numerous issues of the Finnish crime magazine Alibi, you found an extraordinary story about a woman called Anja who shot her Norwegian husband in the 80s, 1980s. Um, however, because the woman had suffered his 
horrendous abuse and violence since the very first day of their marriage, the Oslo court regarded that she had already bore her punishment and let her free. So you take the story as a basis for your book and retell it in 101 different variations. Uh, now, the idea of uh, these variations differ. Some plays with form, like the one where the main story is told entirely in footnotes. Some play with genres or style, uh, styles. For example, you tell this murder story in a form of ballad or a dialogue. Uh, there are also a few that seem to be purely for authors and maybe readers' fun, like the one that is uh, told completely in emojis. Uh, so tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about the beginnings. Uh, why did you choose precisely this murder and uh, such a form to tell and retell the story? Uh, the beginning of this project uh, was approx approximately six and a half years ago. Uh, oh, time flies, <laughs> yes. It was one of our evenings together, uh, Laura and me. We were, uh, we were discussing once again about literature, its uh, many possibilities, and so on. At some point that evening, uh, we were talking about how come so many uh, bestsellers, they are built around a violent death yeah. of a young, beautiful woman. How come this uh, concept is so widely accepted? Uh, and we started to wonder what would happen if we turned around this this pattern. Yeah. <coughs> and uh, we wanted to find a case study uh, from a magazine, something that has already happened. So we wouldn't, wouldn't create one more uh, kind of story of brutal abuse yeah. and create it again and again. So we wanted to have it already kind of done. And then uh, it was also a bit like... Um, microhistoric research yeah. that we tell that okay this really happens it has happened before it happens now and it will unfortunately happen again but we have to fight against it yeah yeah so this is actually sort of a real story as i understand of anya and you have um, um a short uh short extract that is also included in your book so that is exactly the the basis the, the basis story that you found in the in the magazine and that begins also your book and um, can you read it for us um, I will read it uh, the, the alibi story is quite a long and <laughs> and uh, in it's very sensational the style of it is very sensational even Maguaber yeah and uh, we have shortened it uh, make it uh, made it a paraphrase yeah. and it's very short and I will read it <coughs> now Anya short her husband did. A gunshot ended Anya and Thurwald's marriage of 18 years in October 1981. Anya and Thurwald were at their friend's party. Everything seemed to be going well, but she was scared. At home, he had a habit of tying her to a gymnastic bar, whip her with an electric cord and question about her other boyfriends. When they got back, he tried to force her to have sex with him. She managed to wriggle free and took out a shotgun from a cleaning cupboard. Her gunshot hit him in the chest, and he died immediately. The court anonymously reached a conclusion that she had served any possible sentence preemptively. 
For the first time in the country's history, a dead man was found guilty. <laughs> the last word read with a glee. <laughs> but it is true, and it is horrendous. I mean, horrendous story of a person, but also an extraordinary story of justice, really. And you then uh, kind of retell it in, in many, many different ways, as I mentioned. And this is uh, where, where we come to a very interesting point and in what you said, that uh, you didn't want to invent a new story, that you wanted to take something that already existed. And in several interviews, when explaining this Ulipo tradition, which was born in France, uh, you mentioned that in such literature, the form is the priority, uh, meaning that the element of fiction, plot, and even readability of, of a story become secondary. And here's where I become really curious to know, uh, in today's publishing world, uh, where the saturation of plot-driven, character-driven, voice-driven stories is palpable, what is the place of literature that is created purely for the sake of experimentation, purely for the sake of literature? Um, to put it simply, why would the reader buy that kind of literature? Um, actually, I don't see that 101 is, is created purely for the sake of <laughs> experimentation. <laughs> as, I've, as I previously said, uh, there is so important theme of domestic violence and and in a general level, the violence against women. So uh, you can't pass this painful level when you are reading this book unless you are a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, but with this question also relates to what I said in the in the introduction uh, regarding the exclusivity of experimental art and experimental literature. Can I, as a reader, and now we're talking exactly about these variations because they are so different, and there are you know there are variations where you take texts from songs, and um, there's so much going on in it. So, um, can I, as a reader, truly enjoy this experiment if I don't have the same knowledge as you, the creators of this experiment? Uh. Mm, I don't think uh, our book. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's very exclusive at all. Uh, there are plenty of footnotes. We have openly shared the knowledge. We have all the information in order to let uh, the reader uh, see how those variations were written and to, well, get inspired as well. This is a great inspirational <laughs> book as well, a, a handbook actually, uh, also. I have never ever heard anyone saying they had a hard time reading our book. Yeah. We have uh, received a lot of feedback and you know uh, it has been praised for being approachable, yeah. uh, introducing dozens and dozens of ways of writing. Uh, the reader doesn't have to understand anything about uh, writing techniques, uh, not to mention experimental things or ulipo <laughs> no at all yeah uh, because uh, these um, these variations to begin with they are pretty short mostly yeah uh, so the reader uh, can familiarize herself very quickly uh, with those variations uh, if the reader reads uh, the theme story uh, and couple of variations, the reader already 
has a good understanding what's going on, uh, how to proceed. Plus, though the variations are in the book in alphabetical order, you don't have to read them in order, but in in whatever order as you yeah. like. So I think this is a very friendly book <laughs> for any reader. Reader friendly. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And we have tried to make the book as accessible as yes. possible, as Sinika just said. So don't yeah. be afraid to read it. Yeah, yes. and that's that's very interesting that you say that because now that Sinika is speaking, I, I'm thinking, okay, so that's your book, but can we apply this to any experimental art if we are talking about, you know, uh, uh, paintings and uh, whatever, if we, if we talk about very postmodern and, you know, avant-garde and whatever was happening when avant-garde was first happening, can you, as an experiencer, as a someone who receives that, can you truly understand and enjoy and appreciate it if you don't have a certain knowledge? Do you... Yeah, can you just... I mean, I know that people or artists always want to say that this is, you know, for everybody, but is it... Yeah. I would say that a work of art uh, learns you, teaches you yeah. to, to uh, receive you and yes. see you and understand you if you give that possibility to it and uh, of course it can take time but uh, but then it's a question of interest and and you, of your attitude yeah yeah absolutely finally. absolutely and i i think um, this is something that what you mentioned before that it probably what happens not only to the the one who experiences but also the one who creates that and what you did with your book that by doing it it's it's somehow um yeah you you see you not only pushing the boundaries but uh, but you see um, you learn where where it can take and how also the the person who is experienced it can experience it in different ways and maybe can find meanings that you haven't had in your mind while you were creating the word the, the work. that's how the art works <laughs> yes <laughs> plus uh, actually uh, the form of this book is basically uh, a theme and variations form, which is for so many really familiar from music yeah. through centuries of classical music. Uh, I think uh, this is a recognizable book. Yeah. Plus uh, the theme story we heard Laura reading. Yeah. Uh, as a story, it's very simple one. Yeah. So th <laughs> I think there are no... Not so many difficulties yeah, <laughs> approaching this yeah. uh, book. And it's also a lot of fun. I yes, can yes. say myself as, as someone who has read the book that it is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I, well, I also want to ask, and this is something that we kind of mentioned a little bit, or, or especially Laura uh, mentioned uh, the social aspect of, uh, of your book, but also experimental literature in general, uh, would you say that um, apart from playing with form and genres and style, 101 Ways um, to Kill Your Husband also has a strong social message and that it tries to convey a certain stand regarding issues in our culture and society? Or can experimentation in itself be a message? Um, well, in this case, uh, if I understand right th the question... Um I wouldn't maybe call it a message, but rather perhaps an, uh, an, an encouragement to yeah. other writers that when you are treating a very sensitive or even painful subject, uh, there are no uh, predeterminate ways to write about it. And it's not a blasphemy to, to use uh, humoristic elements mm. uh, in this kind of uh, story, because um, 
humor, when it's framed, as we have done, I believe, in the book, uh, can be also cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, when something is repeated uh, more than a hundred times, isn't there always a message? <laughs> don't you think? Uh, in our book, the husband dies over and over again because uh, a young woman dies violently, has been uh, died violently tens of thousands of times in uh, crime stories. If uh, not millions. Yes, <laughs> actually, yes. Uh, so if we, uh, if. Uh, our husband <laughs> in our book died only once. That would have not have been enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wouldn't so do it's justice. revenge <laughs> <laughs> to our culture. Yes, oh, <laughs> culture. That's great, <laughs> and and a fun one. That's yeah, a very creative one. And this, uh, we are again kind of coming back to the to the topic of uh, recreating text. And I was very intrigued by what you said in one interview that in this book, basically, there is no original text at, in the sense that you are uh, reproducing and reinventing what has already been written or even quite literally uh, borrowing sentences, borrowing ideas from other texts. So where does the experiment truly begin? Does it begin with the clear limits and borders, with knowing everything that uh, previously has been done in the area uh, you are planning to experiment with, even if it's even possible. Where, does, where did and where does experiment begin for you? I think uh, the experiment started already uh, when we searched for the base text. And what I mean is uh, we knew what we were after. We took a lot of trouble finding it. And uh, we had set beforehand, beforehand certain conditions for that base text. For instance, it had to be a real-life story. Yeah. And it had to be a woman who is the killer. Yes. <laughs> and it has to be a man who gets killed. Yes. These yeah. were the starting point for our experiment. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we talk more generally about writing, your writing or separate writing processes, not only in this book, but when you write as two separate authors. Um, well, Sinika mentioned in the beginning that any kind of writing is sort of experimentation and, and trying out and playing, but uh, where does that? Is it always begin the same way, the processes and experimenting with text and playing with the idea that you might get for a book? Does it always begin in the same way? or It's never the same, <laughs> because each, each book you write uh, asks different questions and puts a different kind of situation in front of you. And uh, actually, all writing starts from not knowing, because if you already knew what you are going to write, okay. then it wasn't worth of writing at all. Yeah. So not knowing is, is maybe the most important thing. I don't th feel that I know everything when I write. I don't know anything when I start to write. Yeah. yeah. I share this opinion. Uh, you can't compare, actually, uh, the books uh, you have written and their processes to each other. They are so different things. You have been uh, the different person as well, not only those projects, but you as a writer. That's so true. And maybe some books that you've written, that you wrote 10 years ago, you couldn't write them now. Yes. Um, because no. you're, yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting, interesting thought. Um, while I was preparing for this uh, episode, um, 
I had a thought that experimental literature is often closer to other art forms and techniques, uh, for instance, painting, collage, even mathematics, if we call it the form of art, um, than it is to fiction. If so, do you think that experimental literature should perhaps be displayed differently than more traditional literature, say not in the form of books, uh, actual physical book and book readings, but something else? Um, I would say that it really depends on mm. what kind of book there the, or other art form is the question. Um, if you, for example, uh, write a cybertext with hyperlinks and restrictions in reading time, then maybe <laughs> the best way to put it out would be something like computer game. Yeah. And installation art, if you want to put it in the space. Yeah. And uh, But for our book, uh, 101, um, it is a book that needs to be printed on paper yeah. because it's a total uh, whole work of art and, and it wouldn't work uh, in the format of audiobook at all because there is so much typographical stuff in it yeah. and it won't be... Uh, in the format of audiobook, never, yeah. <laughs> if it depends from <laughs> us, and not even ebook because it destroys the the material aspect yeah. of of a book. Exactly. Yeah. Like, how do you do an audio book of uh, an audio variation of emojis? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, would you say that Finnish authors in general, if we're talking? Generally, Finnish fiction. Uh, let's say, um, are they eager to experiment? Are they eager to play? Are they brave uh, in their text, in their work, and with their work? Yes, I don't think so. And at least uh, we have received, as mentioned, uh, so much feedback mm. uh, about our book. Uh, it shows that our colleagues are highly interested in this kind of uh, approach. Yeah. To writing and craft. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also curious to ask your opinion regarding the translatability of experimental literature. I've, uh, while preparing for this episode, I kind of read that uh, some books, some of the major works of Ulipa group have been actually translated into Finnish even. Um 101 Ways to Kill Your Husband has been sold to Gallimard in France and is currently being translated into French. As a translator myself, I can tell that uh, with certainty that this is um, absolutely, we're talking about entirely different translation process than usual. Um, is it translating at all or ra rather rewriting in collaboration with you the authors, and do you think that all literature can be and should be translated? I don't know, should it be translated, <laughs> but but in principle all literature can be. It's just how you do it, the question is how. Um, I think that there are three kind of um, approaches to translating our book. One is that some variations can be easily translated in a kind of traditional way, like yeah. ekphrasis, uh, philosophically, necrophilically, <laughs> etc. <laughs> there is a content that can be translated without questions. Um, then uh, some variations need to be rewritten and recreated because they are totally based on language. Yeah. Like homovocalism, if you leave all the vocals from the source text, the yeah. text I, I read uh, 
that previously, the theme text, there in the original order, and then replace the consonants. <laughs> you need to do it in, in the base of the translation. Yeah. So it, it changes everything, yeah. as you see. And then there are borderline cases. Mm. For example, variations uh, which are a pastiche. For example, a Finnish writer, known not known abroad, like Kalle Päätalo. Yeah. And uh, there is a possibility to translate it in, in a traditional way and maybe put a footnote where it explains why Kalle Päätalo has <laughs> <laughs> is important in yeah. our literature. But other possibility would be to choose uh, a writer, for example, from France, uh, who has kind of same reputation as Pátalo is here and, and create it from that base. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you heard from the from your French translators regarding this regarding this book? Have you talked about them? Actually, uh, <laughs> uh, we are going to meet them in uh, two weeks. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very interesting. And I, I've well, I actually met them and talked about this translation, and they were I know that they're very eager. Uh, but this is also something that I thought about because it's in France and it's Olipo tradition and Olipo tradition, you know, for everyone in France, it's so kind of well known and at least anyone who is interested in literature. So that's also uh, something interesting, like, um, yeah, how, how, how you would be translating and kind of, I was just from my perspective as translator who translates into as small language as as fin- Finnish, um, thinking how would I approach this? And it's, um, it's definitely... I think it's also the the case of 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 play and game for the translator as well. Yes, uh, when I have uh, talked about our book with with different translators, uh, they all have been very uh, fascinated about <laughs> it and and uh, thinking that I really want to translate it because it's a different process than normally. Yeah. You have to create more, and you are kind of allowed to create more, and that exactly. is the new situation maybe for many translators and and many of them which I have talked about, <laughs> have been like, I want to do this. Yeah, yeah, and it's really nicely. We kind of come back to the very first sentence of my introduction, that experimenting is very much about freedom, and this is the freedom that is given. And this book gave, I guess, the freedom to you to create, and, and I think to many translators it would be, and for those lucky French translators, <laughs> it will be the, the freedom to create as well and, and take creative creative freedoms as much as they want to. Yes, and I'm very glad that uh, Claire Saint-Germain and Alexis Moine, they are collaborating with the translation as we have collaborated with Sinica uh, in the writing process. And I think this symmetry is, is very good because um, we couldn't, I believe, we couldn't done it uh, alone, yeah. this book. And it uh, is, I, I believe that the uh, end result will be much better when the translation uh, is done in 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 couple. Yeah, yeah. As well. Yeah, you're correct. I forgot to mention that there are two translators who are doing this and they actually when I talked with them uh, as I understood they they kind of do it in the same way as I heard you were doing this book that both have divided the text into parts or kind of one has like 50 variations and one another 50 and then you exchange millions of times and comment and I think that's how they are also doing that and this is something fascinating and uh, must have been a very long process of writing. Oh yes, uh, it was kind of uh, constant uh, dialogue uh, writing this, it was really nice uh, and it's natural to think that translators uh, do it 
likewise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, to finish, a uh, very um, simple, very literary uh, questions. Um, who is your current literary crush, Laura? Uh, now I'm working with uh, Marcel Proust uh, à la régie de Dame Perdu <laughs> in Finnish translation. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's partly um, based on, on my work, working process. It's not totally, totally de deliberate. But uh, I have to say that when you are... I, 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 oh, I listen it in Eriamanto's reading and, and then I come back to the text uh, in the parts that interests me the most. But um, it's like... a. TV series that has many, many, many uh, sessions, like uh, Bold and the Beauty, that you get to get used to the world yeah. <laughs> and you want to emerge in it. Yeah. So I have a little Proust addiction going on. Sinikka. <laughs> uh, for me, I, I think um, it's not who but what and not uh, current but constant. <laughs> if I had to choose five books to, to uh, Desert Island, one of them would definitely be uh, to the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, how could I describe it <laughs> more than <laughs> life <laughs> to me, this book? <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the most uh, surprising book uh, you've recently read? Let's start with Sinikka this time. Oh, this is a good one. Um, let's mention Tender Buttons by Gertrude Stein. Uh, to begin with... Its form, those little fragments, they are actually something between prose and poetry. And I always love this kind of combination or something you can't tell the differ, yeah. uh, difference. Uh, and sh uh, her way, ways uh, of, of uh, using language uh, means that when she writes about very, very uh, common uh, familiar objects. Uh, the result is anything but familiar. They are very unfamiliar objects. <laughs> uh, after <laughs> she she has she has been there with her language push. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Furthermore, uh, they are really fragments, and uh, this is something I'm always I have a keen interest in uh, because the reader has uh, the greatest. Um, responsibility uh, the reader has to kind of fill the gaps I mean the uh, transfers between sentences and meanings so it's very activating <laughs> for for the reader yeah yeah Laura what is the most surprising book that uh, you I have to add read? that we do have a Gerrit Stein um, pastiche that is imitation of style yes. in, in our, our book as well That's and true. I agree you can tender buttons great work of art uh, what I lastly read and that surprised me was uh, Maria Kyllönen's Vaina uh, Jaiset, a Finnish book that is in your catalog as well. Undeparted, yeah. Yes, and um, I just uh, finished it yesterday actually, and uh, it, has third no it is her third novel, uh, and she had a 20 years pause in, in writing, and her language is just. Uh, Unique. You do, <laughs> you don't find that kind of use of language anywhere in yeah. in Finnish literature. So that that surprised me <laughs> all the time when I read it. Yeah, which author or book never fails to make you laugh, Laura? Mm, here I would say that um, today I would say that uh, it's Lydia Tavis' uh, mm. uh, 
collection of short prose, uh, recently translated into Finnish by Aki Salmela. Her sentences are so serious <laughs> and so over-exact and so uncompromising, and the subject can be like uh, what she said and what she really thought. Yeah. And that's the content of, of the short story. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> Sinikka. Uh, I know I'm a bit bored now, but actually, when we were talking about tender buttons, that kind of literature actually <laughs> makes me laugh. Uh, those uh, always short forms had this power of creating this continuity, mm. and it's something I, I really, uh, I think it's very fun <laughs> <laughs> reading that kind of text. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for coming here. It was it was lovely to to have you. Thank you. Thanks. This was literature from Finland, brought to you by Helsinki Literary Agency and hosted by me, Urte. Special thanks to Petri Latvala for the design and Alessandro Nana for the music, and to all the colleagues at the agency. Don't forget to tune in next episode.